phone or a tablet, you'll be looking at the text. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3 and then the beginning of 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, if you haven't been with us before or it's been a little while, um, you know we, we tend, if you're thinking, man, only two songs, what's going on? I was just getting rolling. We do that intentionally. Um, we save the bulk of our, of our worship through song for actually after the sermon, and we do that intentionally. We want to respond to how the Lord leads and guides and speaks to us through His Word. Um, trusting that is the way that He most clearly, most consistently, most succinctly speaks is through His Word, and so that we want to worship in response to what He reveals to us this morning. And if, as, as for 1 Corinthians, we tend here to teach through books. We just start um, in a new book and work our way through it week after week, month after month, um, taking as much time as needed to work through a book. And so we've been in Paul's letter to the Corinthians for just a few weeks now, haven't been in here very long. And so just a little bit of recap. Um, this is Paul's fourth letter he's written. He's writing it from the city of Ephesus to the city of Corinth. He had actually spent 18 months in Corinth, one of his longer tenures in a place. And this letter is coming some three years roughly after his visit to Corinth. And we know from 1 Corinthians 5 that this is actually the second letter um, that we know of that he's written them. And so there's, there's going to be a back and forth, because if, if you know your scriptures at all, there's the 2 Corinthians, and there's reference to another letter. So there were at least four letters back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians. Um, Corinth was a city that had been reestablished by Rome. And so although it was a Greek city with a Greek culture and heritage and history, it was now very much a Roman-inspired city um, that had been inhabited, repopulated with freedmen, so former slaves, and they were given kind of carte blanche to create this city. Um, it, was a, it became a really well-known port city. It was a very wealthy city because it's it set on this isthmus, which is the skinny part of a peninsula, only four and a half miles across. They would actually, instead of sailing around the coast, would drag their boats across this four and a half miles. And so with ports on both sides, the world was attracted to them because there was success, there was a chance to, to, to be independent, to, to make a name, to make a business, to make wealth for yourself. And as money flowed in, the nations flowed in. And so Corinth became known as kind of this, this weird mix of, of maybe like a, kind of a Vegas and a New York, right? There were a lot of pluralistic um, religious ideas that Christians were actually the ones that were called atheists because they only believed in one God. And when you have this buffet line before you of all these things that you could believe in, um, that there was all of the rampant um, sin that would come with being in a, a wealthy city and in a port city specifically, and it was just made up of the nations. And so Paul is writing this letter back to the Corinthians because he's saying, look, the, the overall goal is for the church to be distinct in their community, to show this distinctness that would reveal the glory of God, His power to transform. And the Corinthians right now are living very much like the Corinthians, right? Those who are not believers. The church in Corinth doesn't look that much different from the world. And so, 1 Corinthians is going to hit on 10 or 11 different behavioral issues. It's a really practical work as it walks through the theology of what does it mean to actually walk in obedience in Christ. And so that's where we, we've started. The first issue has simply been the issue of, of unity and of factions that have, have emerged. And this disunity is allowing the, the church not to be healthy. 
So Paul is addressing this in the first several chapters. Um, as we get started this morning, I want you to think um, about your opinion of church, right? Like, what is your opinion of church? Hopefully, um, those who have been at Redeemer for a while, right, maybe your opinion has been swayed a little bit, um, right, not towards arrogance, but maybe towards health. But if, if you think about how do your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, your, your family, how do, how do people think of church? And typically, if we think about how it's seen or perceived, maybe even some perception you come in still with this morning, is that typically I think church is seen as a little bit outdated by a lot of folks. Like, is it really that beneficial? Um, so it's more of something that, that folks who are either, that either they think of themselves as doing really well, or maybe you're just old and that's what you do because you've always done church, right? Um, maybe it's seen as, honestly, the kind of the growing theme and idea and perception in our culture is that churches, people there are bigots, right? That they're the ones like the Corinthians who would be told, man, y'all are atheists because you only believe in one God. Why don't you love everybody, right? That the church is a, has a growing reputation of being narrow-minded, small-minded, bigots, right? Some people's perception of church would be it's about money, right? Like that's, that's what we're going to talk about. It's money. Others would say um, it, it's, it's, it's a, a good old boy place, right, where folks who, who think they're better than us hang out together and look down on us, right? That, that if, we, if we run with this for a little bit, for the most part, negative connotations are what's going to come. And, and it's not that there aren't positive ones, but the negative ones seem to get a lot more press, right? That they're going to be quicker to roll off someone's mouth as to why would you be a part of something like that. And remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthians saying, I want you to be distinct in a, in a culture, in a city that really is very, very, very different from you. And that that's going to begin to have implications for how you live your life. And so we've, we've looked at, at wisdom and foolishness and what that looks like um, in the church and in Corinth. As we think about churches, it also makes you think about the role of pastors, right? And I think if we, and if we think back, there was probably a day and age where the, the term pastor was, was just kind of respected, period. You know, for the most part, most pastors were just given a little bit of like, oh, you're a pastor, then that means you're, and it was a positive thing. It was a respectful thing. Um, I think maybe in our area of the country, that still exists a little bit, um, but, but I would say in general, pastors' images are not going up, right? They're going down. As we've seen, you know, the hashtag MeToo movement, um, the church too thing that's gone on, that we've seen a lot of pastors recently fall, right, in disgrace from, from past sin, from current habitual ongoing sin, um, that, that those things make the news and they're messy because they affect people and they hurt people. And so we've seen churches and, and men who are, are pastors who have brought um, pain and suffering and abuse to the church and to its reputation. Um, even, even myself, as I think about how I interact with people, if I meet someone who they don't know that this is what I do vocationally, um, we can be having a, a great conversation. And at some point, right, it's going to come up, so what do you do? And when I say what I do, that conversation goes one of two ways really quick, right? Because it either goes, really? Because I have a question for you, right? And so they're enthused because maybe, like, you know, you're the spiritual expert, um, which isn't. Or 
the conversation pretty much dies and immediately goes to life support. And it's like, because they've said something that they didn't want to, like, oh man, I'm embarrassed, or I'm, I can't believe I said that, or you were letting me cuss, and you weren't even telling me you're a pastor, like you should have, a, have to have a name badge on so I don't do that, right? And, and so it got to the point where I was playing racquetball one time, and, and we're having this great conversation, and all of a sudden they asked, so what do you do? And in my mind, I'm thinking, what can I say real quick so that I don't say pastor? Because I know where this conversation, it's going to die a horrible death, right? And, and it's because, right, of perception of church and of pastors. And so Paul is very concerned with the perception of the Corinthian church in the city of Corinth. Not because he's looking to gain some sort of worldly success, not because he's looking to gain some sort of political power, but because they are reflecting the very nature and the image of God, right? And remember, he says, look, I came to you in weakness. I was not an impressive orator like those that you expect in Corinth. He says, and I came to you with a simple message that seemed foolish because a, a, a crucified Christ, a Messiah that seemingly loses. And it, y'all aren't the most impressive people in Corinth. And he goes, and yet the Spirit of God has brought about salvation And the reason that we know there's power in the gospel is because we're having this conversation. Because he says, you believed it even though it wasn't as bold and as impressive as you would have expected an orator to have done. And so this has kind of just been the the conversation that has been going on. So I want us to read beginning of verse 16 of chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God. Into chapter 4. And this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So we know that not all churches are made the same, right? That even though the, maybe the same hope should be there, the same um, desire to please Jesus should be there, we know that there are churches that are simply a veneer of something else, right? That they would call themselves something that they actually aren't. We know there are churches where they're, they're just dead, maybe once were alive. We've seen that. We know that there are churches that are doing exactly what Paul would long for, that they are being beacons of hope and light in their culture and in their community. We know that there are churches who there are dark things growing in the dark right now, right? Like that all of these things are happening, 
and what all would take the name church. And so why are we talking about this is that the desire would be because we want to know how to discern, right, the healthy expectation of a church and of its leaders, right? That Paul is saying, look, it matters your expectation of what you walk into and what you would expect of from your leaders. Because the church in Corinth was in an impressive place where speakers would come in with lavish banquets and look to win followers, and Paul says, I came to you in weakness and in simple words. And he says, and yet something changed. And so they're now criticizing Paul because Apollos, who is a better speaker, right? And they're going, well, maybe we just like Apollos better because, Paul, you're not that impressive. They're taking the wisdom of the world and judging the men who are stewarding God's mysteries. And he's saying, I want you to know how to do this, um, to know what you should expect. I want you to know this so that you know what to expect here. I want you to know this so that you know what to expect if the Lord moves you to a new community or a new place. I want you to know it so that you can hold the leaders that God raises up here accountable to what success is and what faithfulness looks like. So let's just look now at verse 16. There's a high expectation. Do you not know, right? He's asking this rhetorical question. Do you, and it's plural here, do y'all, do y'all not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all, right? So he's saying y'all are God's temple. The Spirit of God dwells in y'all, right? In, in us. So we, we read this and we think, oh, that's great. As an individual, the Spirit of God. He says, no, no, no. Y'all are the temple of God. In y'all, the Spirit dwells. And so we need to see that it's, it's a communal thing, that God has a high view of His church. And He says that we, that they in Corinth were God's temple. Now, in reality, they were small, they were somewhat insignificant. Um, there was tons of temples and, and, and places to worship, and the church at this point were meeting in homes. They were quite literally not a temple. They did not have a place where they were gathering. They had homes that they were gathering in. And he says, but I want y'all to know that y'all are the temple of God in Corinth. What's, what's the role of a temple? Right? It's to display right, the power, the influence of a deity. And he's saying, so y'all, in the way that you live, in the way that you proceed, in the way that you act, you have my spirit in you, and you are displaying to the world and the community around you who I am and what I'm like. Right? Pretty convicting thing here to say, he's not asking them, go build a temple that would show my glory. He says, y'all are my temple that reveals my glory. That it's us as a people As they're talking about a temple, they would have known that to build a temple, you need a lot of people, diverse people, and you need diverse gifts. And one of the things we're going to see in this letter to the Corinthians is he's going to say, look, we don't all have the same giftings. We're not all, we don't all think alike, we don't all act alike, but if we all have Christ, then we are unified. This picture of a temple is a call for unity. He says, quit quit dividing over Apollos and Peter and, and myself of Paul. He's like, come together under the banner of Christ. It's the same as Israel. Israel was not called as a nation to be God's chosen people because they were mighty, because they had the best military, because they were the biggest. He says, I called you in Deuteronomy because you were the smallest. You were the least in number. You were not impressive. And so my glory would be shown as you become the nation that I would have for you to be. So he's saying, look, 
as we have come together as a ragtag group of believers, my power and my glory will be displayed because y'all are my temple, where I am dwelling with you and my spirit is with you. It is a beautiful and powerful picture of what the expectation of the local church should be, that it is unified in displaying God's character and goodness to the world. We go on then to verse 17, and we see not only is there a high expectation, there is high accountability. So look what he says. So if anyone destroys God's temple, right? He's not talking about a building now. He's talking about God's people, the church. God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. And so the warning here is you don't mess with God's church. Now we've just seen previously in chapter 3, Remember, it says that there are going to be those who are going to build with hay and stubble, right, instead of like good building materials. And so at the end of the day, it's going to be shown that their ministry was really for naught. And they're going to escape with their salvation, but they're going to be singed with smoke. And it's going to show that everything they had built on was faulty. It wasn't great, that they had missed it. But they're going to escape with their salvation. But now Paul's saying there will be some who are going to build, and they're, they're not building, they're destroying. And so there's this warning here, right, to take care of how you're ministering, how you're working in the church. The, the threat to us, if, I think often if we think, what is the threat to the church? We think the big bad government, or we think some outside influence, or somebody with a lot of um, power. Paul's saying, no, the, the issue, the threat to the church is not from outside, it's from within. It's going to come that we cannot figure this out, that we are not unified, that we're going to destroy ourselves from within. He goes, and if, if that's you, if you're looking to destroy the church from within, God sees it and he's going to destroy you. That's why Paul will say to the, the, the elders in Ephesus and Acts, he'll say, look, as I'm leaving, you men pray and prepare yourself because there are going to be wolves who are going to come in sheep's clothing looking to destroy this. That the church has enemies and they're going to come from within. Let's go to 18 now. 18 through 23 are going to kind of summarize the, the arguments of the first three chapters. So he says, let, let no one deceive himself. Right? So I want you to imagine this letter being read, and he says, so let no one deceive themselves. And you can imagine what most of the people in the room are going to say, yeah, that's not me, that's them, right? Let no one deceive themselves. There's a possibility that we can lack enough self-awareness that we are deceived this morning as to what it is that we're doing. Right? Paul himself knows this. Because remember, Paul would have said, I was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the... Like, I was, to the law, zealous. Right? Like, he is persecuting, pursuing Christians. To throw. He would have said, I've got it figured out. And he said, I was deceived. Right? So he's saying, like, don't, don't think this morning this isn't you, that you could not be the one who's deceived in how to view what success looks like in the church, what faithfulness looks like. He goes on. So if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And so we've seen so far in these first three chapters that Paul has been saying, in the world, right, we look for impressive things, we look for success, we look for numbers, we look for money. Like, we look for the success that the world calls, and he says, that's not success to God. That's not wisdom to God, right? Because even the gospel itself, it appears that God loses until Jesus walks out of the tomb alive and resurrected. 
He's like, our message seems foolish. And so he says, if you want to be wise, then you're going to become a fool to the world. The world is not going to look at you and applaud and think you're brilliant. They're going to think you're a bigot. They're not going to look at you and think you're successful. They're going to look at you and say you've wasted your time on some fairy tale. Right? If you want to be wise in God's eyes, he says, the world is going to think you are a fool. And if you need the world's approval, he says, you need to understand that that's what, not what God's wisdom looks like. That they're different. They, are, they, they, they don't walk together in harmony. That they are opposed to one another. That you are willing to be a fool in the world's perception. Even Jesus, right, says this. This is in Matthew 10, verse 39. So whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, right? This kind of paradoxical, like you want to gain life, lose it, right? It's, it's our submission to Jesus that we're, we're laying our life down and saying, okay, God, I'm not doing it anymore. It's you. I'm giving you my life. And in that, we find life. And the world would say, you hold on to your life for nothing. You don't submit to anyone. You're the ruler of your domain. You're the king of your castle. You're the one. Nobody can judge you, right? Like you can just hear the world screaming this at us. And Jesus says, no, no, you lay your life down at my feet. You submit to me. And in that, you will find life, and you will find hope, and you will find wisdom. And so he then quotes... Um, continue verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He's actually quoting from Job chapter 5. If you remember the story of Job, Job, um, the Lord has, has taken everything from him. And he's kind of sitting there going, what has happened? And he has three friends that come and try to give him advice. And their advice um, and their wisdom isn't great. And so, Eliphaz, he says this in verse 13. So, I want you to listen to what Eliphaz says. He says, he's talking about God. He says, God, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. And you're like, that's a true statement. That's true. He's giving some truth, but it's mixed in with so much of his own thought and lack of wisdom. And what Paul is saying here is like, Eliphaz thought he was wise. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived that sometimes you may say wise things. You may say things that sound good or sound right. But Eliphaz was shown to be a fool who brought poor wisdom and was not a benefit to his friends at all. He also quotes from Psalm 94. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. So verse 21, so let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. So here's what's happened, right? It starts with, Paul says, I heard from Chloe's people. Chloe's people said, y'all are arguing, and you're trying to gain authority and gain respect and gain superiority over your fellow believers by saying, I belong to Apollos, and Apollos blows Paul out of the water. And others are going, no, 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 no. We're gaining superiority over you because I belong to Paul, and Paul planted the church. And others are saying, well, no, 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 right? And, and he says, like, Listen to what he says. He says, so let no one boast in men. He's saying, stop it. When you're boasting in men, you're raising them up. They're servants. They are stewards. 
Right? It's why he went through and talked about them being like farmhands. They're craftsmen building something. He says, we rejoice in Jesus. We do not boast in men who are servants. It doesn't gain you anything. If you belong to them, so what? What's belong to Christ? So, listen, he doesn't just say stop it. He actually gives them this big, bigger and better picture. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, who is Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. So what he says is, those, you don't belong to them. They belong to you. They are God's servants that he has given the church in Corinth. They're all yours. They're serving you. So you don't belong to them. They belong to you. And then he goes on to say, so all things are yours, the world, life, death, the present, or the future. What's he saying here? He's saying this. This life is great. It's not all that there is. There's also the future. So you, you belong to more than just this life. Death. You don't fear death anymore because Christ is resurrected. His perfect life, his obedient death, and his subsequent resurrection means you don't fear death anymore. The death of death has died at the cross. He then goes on to say, right, it's not just life or death. It's the present. It's the future. He says it's all yours. How is it ours? Because you are Christ, right? We get it all. It all belongs to us because we are co-heirs with King Jesus. We belong to him, and guess what? It all belongs to him. So he says, you want to sit here and talk about whether Apollos or Paul's a better preacher? You belong to Jesus, the king who has it all. Apollos, he's going to die. Paul, he's going to die. We have a king who's alive, who beat sin and Satan and death. And Paul and Apollos and Peter and other unnamed men, they serve him. They work for him. They are dependent upon him. He gives them their task, and they go forward in obedience. Right? He paints this big, beautiful, powerful picture of why would you argue about which pastor you like better? You have Jesus, and he is sufficient. And he goes on to then say, and Christ is God's. Why? Because Jesus, his life exemplified obedience, it exemplified humility when he didn't have to be humble, right? And he gave he did all for the glory of his Father, the glory of God. So Jesus' life epitomized not living for worldly success, right? He didn't come for kings and queens. He came for sinners. He didn't have a mansion. He says the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, right? Like he didn't live with the finest things. He lived a life that would have been said, you had so much to offer the world, Jesus, and you just missed it because you died. And he says, in that humility, we see it the attitude that we're beginning to walk in, that we should be walking in, that we're not concerned with what the world calls success. We're worried about honoring and pleasing God and seeing what He calls success. Because Jesus is alive to let us walk this way. And so look, goes on now in verse 1. So this is how you, this is how y'all should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So what does he say? What is success for these men? What's success as believers? It is not, right, numerical success. 
It is not financial success. It is not impressive, like, speaking skills. It's not being lavish. It's not having a lot of attention poured upon you. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness, right? And yet our tendency is when we, when we walk into a church, when we move to a new city, when we think about where is it that we're going to go, we go to the most impressive place. Or the guy with the best, like, worldly speaking skills. Or, and it's not that, what, listen to me, we're not being said, hey, go to the guy that's the worst at it, right? Because he's obviously being faithful because why else would he be doing it, right? Like, it's not, they're, they're, the Lord does give gifts, right? But he's saying what deems success is faithfulness to the king because you're serving him and you've been given a task that he has given you. And is, are you being pointed to the one that actually is impressive, Jesus? I can't do anything for you. My name does not save you, right? No pastor's does, but Jesus' will. It, it, it will. And so what are we drawing attention to? The name on a building, the name on the stage, or the king? Right? And so Paul's saying, look, what I want you to look for, what I want you to long for is to see your ministers be faithful, that they would lead you and guide you as stewards as servants because they will give an account right there will be a day where my motivations will be revealed where my thoughts and my desires and my tents and everyone else's will be revealed right and we will see why we did what we did i will give an account for it so so here's the the struggle right the world screams at us daily what success is right it's bigger better faster up and to the right, always, more money, more people, more, 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 right? That is what we are told success is. And so it creeps in, right? And so um, Carmen and I are leaving for a pastor's retreat this afternoon for a couple days, right? And the temptation is to walk in and like, so how many do you have on Easter, right? <laughs> right? And, and, and then you, and you just begin to talk about like the highs, right? And we're not going to talk about the lows. And the temptation is in worldly ways to talk about what success has looked like at Redeemer. And so then it's this comparison game and this like woe is me game if someone else has more, right? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's faithfulness. Are you serving the king and playing the role that he has given you? Whether you're a pastor or a mom or a dad, whether you're in the workplace, whether it's with your neighbors, as you pursue Jesus, as we pursue Jesus together, are we being faithful to say, I'm not that impressive, but he actually is? Are we, are, we, are we the waiters bringing out the meal and saying, look at what he's prepared for us? We are co-heirs. We get it all. So we're not going to have these petty arguments and these petty fights. We're not going to say, right, like that is success and that isn't because of what the world says. We're going to say faithfulness is success like people being discipled and matured and loving Jesus more, treasuring Him, that is success. Not basic, like, accounting, right, of numbers. And so the requirement is not charisma, it's not success, it's not eloquence, it's faithfulness. And now let's see how he ends this up. Verse 3, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, meaning them, or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Here's what he's saying. He's not, he's not going up there and talking like we talk now and say, you can't judge me. It's not what he's saying. 
What he's saying is your perception of me, right, your judgment of me does not change the mark that I'm shooting for. It doesn't change what success is, right? Because there's going to be a day where I'm going to stand before the king and all will be revealed. And it will all be known. And so that's why he says, even my own judgment of myself actually isn't that, like, monumental. Because God one day is going to say, like, you fooled yourself. That's why he says, let no one deceive themselves. Like, we will stand, all of us will stand before God, and our motives and our desires and our intentions will be revealed as to why did we speak his name? Why did we serve him? Why did we work for him? Was it so that we could gain approval and attention from others because of our worldly success? Was it because we were desiring to be faithful, good stewards and servants of our king? So he says, so I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. That just because I think my conscience is clean doesn't mean it is. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. That day will happen. It will come. So he's saying, like, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to then bend to what I'm doing because of what you want from me. I'm going to do what I feel like the king has asked of me. I want to be faithful to that. We're going to see later in Corinthians, in this letter, that Paul's going to talk about what it looks like for Christians to judge one another. There actually is a category of that, right, where we talk about blatant sin. So this isn't where we don't get to walk away from this and say, you, don't, you can't judge me. What he's saying is you can't judge our thoughts and our intents and our motives from why we're doing ministry. God knows, and he will reveal, and he gives a reward. Look at how he ends verse 5. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. So here's, here's where we're ending. Every, every person that's ever lived, right, gets glory, and they get shame, okay? And so if we live for the success of this world, if we live for the approval of man and the approval of this world, then people will applaud and say, yes, yes, I think highly of you, right? And then there will be a day where you will be judged by God and you will receive shame because you were living a worldly wisdom that was not pleasing to God. And so you will get glory for the 40, 50, 60, 80 years of your life and then shame, right, from the one that actually mattered, potentially eternally. Or you may get rebuked and shame from the world that calls you a bigot when you're not, who says you're not successful when you are, who claims that you are outdated when you're faithful. And then there will be a day where the king will stand before you and the king of the universe will heap praise upon your faithfulness to him, that you are a good servant, a good steward, who lived by the wisdom of God when the wisdom of the world was screaming that you are a fool. So he says, right, you're going to get shame either way. So the question is, do you want shame from God? Do you want shame from man? Do you want glory from man? Or do you want glory from God? Because the day will be coming where it will be revealed. That what we should long for is our reward from the king. That we would realize that we belong to him, that we are co-heirs. And so that would drive our faithfulness, not so that you would applaud me or that I would applaud you, but that we will bow a knee to King Jesus one day and that he will say, good job, 
right? Faithful servant, well done. Right? That you saw the significance of the eternal weight of glory. And so church, Paul then is going to kind of begin to work his way out of this moving forward, saying, so, so let's be unified because we belong to Christ. And so now let's figure out how we reflect his glory, how we actually are distinct. And he's going to begin to move into some behaviors that he's saying right now make you look like the rest of Corinth. Let's change some of those. But first, we have to be walking in the wisdom of God, not of man, seeing the success of God as faithfulness, not lavish, impressive things, and that we would be unified because we belong to Christ, and let's quit fighting over our leaders. So now, we're going to begin to walk into what do these behaviors look like so that we will reflect the King of glory in Corinth so that we'll do it in Pampa and in the surrounding area. Right? Let me pray for us.